This morning I want to talk to you about being a VIP, a very important person. According to Wikipedia, a very important person or a VIP is a person who is accorded special privileges due to his or her status or importance. Examples include celebrities, heads of state, heads of governments, major employers, high rollers, politicians, high-level corporate officers, wealthy individuals, or any other notable person who receives special treatment for some reason. I uh, was looking on the Internet, and I found this advertisement from Madison Square Garden for tickets for the VIP box at the garden. And this is how the advertisement reads. Take entertaining to the next level in an exclusive VIP box at the garden. The combination of location, privacy, and services make this an unparalleled experience. This elite center location is only rows from the action and seats between six and eight guests. Sit back in luxurious leather chairs and enjoy in-seat service while never missing a moment of the event taking place just steps in front of you. What is emphasized in VIP status is service and luxury. Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, is certainly a VIP. And it is only fitting, it is thought, that a person of such importance and accomplishments would live in luxury and opulence. Bill Gates' home in Medina, Washington, has an assessed value of $147.5 million. That's his home. $147,500,000. That's the good news. The bad news is he pays $1,063,000 in property tax every year. But this home is 66,000 square feet. Now, that may mean something to you. That means absolutely nothing to me. I, I can't picture what a square foot is. I certainly can't picture what 66,000 square feet is. But this I could picture, and this was helpful to me. According to the National Association of Home Builders, the average American house size is slightly more than 2,000 square feet. So that means Bill Goats, Bill, Bill Goats, Bill, we have nothing against this man. You understand that? All right. <clears throat> Bill Gates' home is 33 times larger than the average American home. Though Jesus was king in Israel, he did not receive VIP treatment. Jesus did not accumulate any wealth here on earth. You know, Jesus did not even own a home. Matthew 8.20 says, Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, 
The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus did not ride in style as he entered Jerusalem on that triumphal Sunday. Uh, he did not ride in a marvelous chariot. He did not even ride in Jerusalem on a magnificent white stallion. Jesus rode in Jerusalem on the back of a borrowed donkey. It is significant and purposeful that the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, the ruler of both heaven and earth, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine, would ride into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. Matthew 21.4 says this, Now this took place, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Why was it significant and even fitting that Jesus would ride on a donkey? Answer, because it symbolized the glory of his kingship. A kingship like no other. A kingship whose glory consisted of humility and service to its subjects. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus was not at all a self-serving king. He came in order not to be served, but to serve, and in that service to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus riding Jerusalem was an important display of the greatness of his kingship. For it says in verse 5 of Matthew 21, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. We are to look upon this king, and in particular the manner in which he comes, gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, a quotation of Zechariah 9.9, and a comparison in Zechariah 9.10 that he doesn't ride with a chariot. He comes not with bow and arrow. He comes not offensively. He comes not to harshly reign over a people, but he actually comes in order to humbly die. As we think about the triumphal entry, we learn something about his kingship. And not only do we learn about his kingship, but we learn about his kingdom. And then we learn about ourselves in relationship to that kingdom. In leading up to the triumphal entry, in leading up to this great event, there are some significant dialogues that take place. The key verses for my message this morning come from Matthew chapter 20, verses 27 and 28. Matthew 20, verses 27 and 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The occasion for Jesus' teaching about greatness was 
a mother's desire for her sons to be VIPs. In Matthew chapter 20, if you look with me at verse 17. Matthew 20, 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to, condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles, to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. In that context, talking about his death and the fact that he's going to Jerusalem in order to die and he has to be handed over to the Gentiles to be scourged and condemned, we find verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. The request is that her sons would be able to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand when he comes into his kingdom. For notice verses 20 and 21. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left. This desire does not arise out of thin air. Jesus previously had spoken to his disciples about reigning with him in his kingdom, verse 27 of chapter 19. Then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? What is there in it for us? We gave up everything in order to follow you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. And that teaching prompted visions of grandeur in the minds of the disciples. When Jesus sits on his glorious throne, they're each going to sit on their own throne. And everything they have given up is going to be incredibly rewarded by God. Whether it be houses, lands, or family. And it prompted a desire on their part of this vision of grandeur. No wonder. Up until this time, the disciples had been with Jesus throughout all of his earthly ministry. They themselves had been given power to cast out demons and perform all kinds of miracles. They were constantly surrounded by Huge, huge crowds, multitudes of people followed them wherever they went. They had rock star kind of status of people wanting to be near them, wanting to touch them, wanting to associate with them. Up until this point, 
their lives had been freed from any kind of persecution or hardship. They did not understand the suffering that was to come. And so now Jesus talks about coming into this glorious throne and kingdom, and they're all in. And the mother of James and John want her sons to have the preeminence. Not just to sit on the thrones, but sit on the left hand and on the right, which means the first and second places of authority. However, it wasn't just James and John's mother that wanted this. They wanted it as well. For notice verse 20 in the NAS. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her, bowing down and making a request of him. James and John actually put their mother up to this. Uh, It would have been in bad taste for them to come to Jesus in front of the other disciples and said, uh, let us be first and second. So instead, they get their mother to do it. Now, how do we know that? Well, in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 37, the mother's not even mentioned. It's just James and John that are mentioned making this request. Because it really comes from them. Even in our text, the response by Jesus is directed to James and John and not to their mother. For notice verse 22. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? The youth quarrel. And he's addressing James and John. He knows where this is coming from. And he says to James and John, You don't even know what you're asking for. You don't realize what it's going to mean to sit on these thrones. You don't have a clue as to what this is going to be like. There's a lesson in that for ourselves. What do we want for ourselves? Money, prestige, power, importance? As we think of the great truth that we, too, are going to reign with Christ. What kind of imagery does that bring to our mind? What is that going to be like? What kind of preeminence, prominence, importance is going to be associated with our reigning with Christ? What's it going to look like? Magnificent robes? Ivory-covered thrones? Servants gathered around us? What is it going to look like? Is it a life of prominence, prestige, luxury, ease? It's interesting that Jesus did not choose these things for himself. He said, the foxes have holes, the birds of the ears have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's good to want to be a leader. It's good to want to fulfill the plan and will of God. But what is it about that that draws us to it? Why do we want places of authority? The second point is that the desire for greatness arises out of a misconception regarding what constitutes true greatness. James and John did not understand the cost of true greatness or what it meant to be a VIP. 
We might entitle this, be careful of what you wish for. For notice verse 22. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking for. You, you don't understand what is involved in this. You don't realize what it's going to take in order for that to come to pass. Notice verse 22. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Are you able to go through what I'm about to go through? He just talked about the fact he's going to suffer and die. And he says to them, are you ready for that? And their answer is, we're able. We're ready. Whatever it takes, that's what we want. All too often, people don't know what they're getting themselves into. Jesus provided many cautions to his followers of what it meant to be a disciple. It was not all glorious by any means. Nevertheless, leadership often does look glorious, glamorous, and the reality is there's a tremendous downside to it. The path of true greatness winds through suffering, and the question is, are they prepared to suffer? His disciples say that they are, and they indeed will suffer. Look at verse 23. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. My cup you shall drink. James becomes the first martyr among the apostles. Uh, Stephen, of course, is the first martyr, but James is the first one among the apostles. But here is a greater lesson, and that is that true greatness is rewarded by God himself. Verse 23. But to sit on my right hand and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus did not even seek glory for himself, but rather he sought glory for God. He dedicated his life not for his self-aggrandizement, but for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Application. We need to cultivate a correct understanding of what greatness really is. Of, of what character is involved in true Greatness, Because the concept that we have is often far different from the concept in the world. And we'll notice that in just a moment. But notice next how the desire for greatness breeds strife and contention. Verse 24. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. The ten became angry, upset, and couldn't believe that they were asking such a thing. They were irritated. There is an awareness that James and John are seeking prominence for themselves. That agitation among the disciples was constant. It arose earlier in Luke 9.46. And an argument among them arose as to which of them might be the greatest. As time went on, things didn't get much better. In fact, they became worse, even as we see this bold request to be first and second in the kingdom. And at the Passover meal in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus announces that he's going to die, and it's the night before his death, it says, Luke 22:24, there also arose a dispute among them as to which of them was going to be regarded as the greatest. Jesus is about to die. They don't think about him. They don't think about what he's suffering. 
And they don't even think about what he's accomplishing for them in terms of their own salvation. What they're thinking about is he's coming into a kingdom. And we're going to have a kingdom. And they wanted to be foremost. Who's going to be the greatest in that kingdom? That disunity. That hardship. There is a lot of disunity in the body of Christ that results from people wanting to be the greatest. People wanting to be the most important. The person wanting to be the VIP. The person who's recognized. The person who's singled out. The person who's thanked. The person who is honored. The person who is glorified. The person who's seen as the most important. The most necessary. The most valuable. The wisest. Whatever kind of accolade you want to put in association with that. And people get upset when they don't think they're getting the recognition that they deserve or they're jealous over the recognition that someone else gets. Why are they being recognized? Why are they being honored? Why are they being singled out? Why don't people realize what I'm doing? Why don't people, aren't people aware of what I'm taking place? If the reason that we are serving, quote-unquote, is for prominence, prestige, or thanks. It's not real, genuine service. Which brings us to the next point. True greatness is to be found in service to God and others. Notice Matthew twenty twenty-five. Greatness is different from society's view of greatness. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. The Gentiles who are rulers make their position obvious. You know that the Gentiles, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That they exploit them. As did the kings of Israel in the Old Testament. That they used the people for their own aggrandizement, for their own wealth, for their own habitats. I was going to take time to go through and describe the palace of David, the palace of Solomon, but I didn't take the time to do it. But it does tell us that it was immense, it was huge. And in the time of Solomon, uh, everything was of gold because silver didn't even matter. It was uh, inconsequential that Solomon was so, so rich. And one of the issues that divided the kingdom, humanly speaking, was taxes. Because Solomon's son was asked as he was going to maintain the taxes that his father did. Because he taxed the people at such a high rate so that he could live so well. It was about personal aggrandizement. Greatness is manifested not in being served but in serving others. Verse 26. It is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Greatness is not to be found in position or title. Greatness is to be found in active service. True greatness seeks to use position and influence not for selfish ambition and reasons, but for the good of others. Our elected officials are often called public servants, but you really wonder how much they are about serving the public. It's not a natural result of fallen man to take second place. The natural desire is to have a life of ease, luxury, 
respect, and prominence. But greatness follows the model of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus gave up everything so that we might become everything. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. Now, it is impossible for me, it's impossible for me, to get my mind around what the Son of God gave up in order to become a man, a human being. I've never been in heaven. I've never seen heaven. I, 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 I tell you, I, I just can't grasp at all, at all, the concept of the second person of the Trinity being willing to take on humanity. The Creator willing to become a part of creation. That, that is just, just mind-boggling. <clears throat> what I can get my hands around a little better is what is described in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant. That's the mystery. And was made in fashion as a man. And as a man, he humbled himself. God humbled himself to become man. Totally beyond me. As a man, he humbled himself. Once he became a man, he became a lowly man. As a man, he was a servant to others. As a man, he healed. Never charged a single dime for any of the, the healings, any of the speaking engagements, anything that he did. He did not prosper himself in all of his servants to his fellow humanity. And now, he's riding into Jerusalem. He has to borrow a donkey, because he doesn't even own a donkey, and rides in to the accolades, to some degree, of a people who don't even believe in him. What we're to see in Jesus is the suffering servant king. The humility of Jesus. The humility of Jesus. First, to be mocked as a king. You see, here is this king. He comes to you gentle and lowly. So that here he comes. Now as the son of man riding into Jerusalem in order to die. And he's going to be mocked. He's going to have a, a crown of thorns put on his head. He's going to have a robe put on his back. He's going to have a, a reed put in his hand for a scepter. And they're going to bow to him and, and uh, say, Hail, King of the Jews, and, and, and mock him and make fun of him. And 
Jesus allows it. And when he hangs on the cross, they're going to taunt him. And they're going to say to him, if you're the Son of God, come down from there. And they're going to laugh and joke because he doesn't come down. And the reason he doesn't is because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. It was the mission statement of Jesus Christ. That's what he was all about. Not being served, but serving and the ultimate service to give his life a ransom for many. But in the humility of Jesus Christ, we recognize the incredible humility of God Almighty. I don't know if you ever thought about God being humble. But Jesus is the express image of God. He is the revealer of who God really is. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we may marvel, and I do, that Jesus hung on a cross. And as people taunted him and said, come down from there, he didn't come down because he purposed to give his life a ransom for many. And today, there are people that raise their puny fist to God and say to God Almighty, what right do you have to reign over us? What right do you have to tell us what to do? People speak with such audacity. On the day of judgment, I'm going to tell God a thing or two. I'm going to ask him why he allowed this to happen and, and why he didn't do this and, and why he didn't do that. Man wants to make God accountable to man. And man sees God as existing only in order to serve man. As long as I can get something out of it, I pray. If there's nothing in it for me, why should I pray? Mankind thinks that, that God exists so that every will, every desire, every longing can be met. And that that's God's responsibility to do it. And he better do it pretty quickly. Because we get tired of waiting around. We get tired of God not answering our prayer. What's the matter, God? What's holding you up? Because we think that, that God exists to serve us. Jesus taught us the incredible nature of God. And it really is amazing that God does serve us. That Jesus does wrap a towel around himself and wash the disciples' feet. It's amazing that God does hear and answer our prayers. And so the psalmist raised the question, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the Son of Man thou visitest him. God, why do you think 
about mankind. Why would Jesus come and die? This is true greatness. There is nothing greater than being Godlike. Godlike. Who do we view as being God-like? True greatness can only be seen in Jesus Christ. If we want to emulate greatness, we have to emulate Him. The trappings of true greatness and the adornment of true greatness is a meek and humble and quiet spirit. That's far different than our world's concept of what greatness is. How do you know who's great? Look at their prestige. Look at their wealth. Look at their servants. Look at their luxury. Look at what they have gained for themselves. And it's so easy to look at the Old Testament. I've been doing Book of Deuteronomy on uh, Sunday mornings in Sunday school. We've been looking at some of the stipulations that God sets forth for kings. They shall not multiply wealth into themselves. They shall not multiply wives. And of course, they break all those prohibitions. Because absolute power corrupts absolutely. We know the statement. And yet, the absolute the absolute sovereign God who has complete power is without corruption. He's meek. He's lowly. He sends his son into this world in order to die that we might experience forgiveness of sins and enjoy peace with God. What is our response to that? I believe that most of you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. Now, we've heard about this glorious future, about the resurrection, about reigning with Christ. What are we longing for? in that reign. Can we identify with James and John? Are we, are we looking for prominence? Are we looking, looking for personal exaltation? That we arise above each other? That we're deemed as more necessary, more important, more gifted, more used? A greater gift to the people of God? Do we view ourselves as Saved so that God can serve us. We're saved. So now he will hear and he will answer our prayers. And he'll give us that which we stand in need of. And he'll provide for us. All of which is true. All which is true. But it's a really perverted view of what it means to be in his kingdom and to be his servants. It's a different kind of kingdom. 
and it's a different kind of exaltation. Who should we admire in our midst? Who should we emulate? Who should we try to be like? Well, obviously that's Christ. We should try to be like him. And Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. You want greatness? You want greatness? Two truths about greatness. One, it comes through being a servant. It comes through being a servant. As we serve Christ, we really do become very important people. Not in the world's view, not with the limousines and not with the searchlights and not with the red carpet rolled out every time we walk into a restaurant. But we do become very, very important. Because exaltation comes from God the Father. The ones for whom it has been prepared, He is going to exalt. The greatest exaltation that we will ever know in life, the greatest accolade, the greatest award, the greatest honor, the greatest prestige that we will ever, ever encounter is for God to look at us and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. The greatest accolade is for God to view us as a faithful servant. Jesus was faithful. May we be as well. Let's pray. Our Father, help us for a servant spirit is so unnatural to us. It so violates our sinful nature. It is hard for us to think of others as more important than ourselves. It is hard for us to limit ourselves for the betterment of others. To put their needs before our own. We do marvel that the Lord Jesus came not in order to be served, but to serve, and in that service to give his life a ransom for many. Oh Lord, help us to see the kind of kingdom that we belong to. And help us to see wherein real greatness consists. Oh Lord, just give us an appreciation for people who have a servant spirit. And may we honor them. May we speak well of them. And may we aspire to be like them. Thank you, Father, for your servants. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.